Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast with me, Scott Challoner. This podcast, just like the Leaders' Council itself, is all about recognising and celebrating the people who keep this country running. We exist to give leaders a voice outside of their own organisation and to support them in the same way that they support their staff every single day of the week. Now, if you are in a leadership position yourself and would like to have your voice heard on the national stage, then please do go to leaderscouncil.co.uk forward slash apply. Now, joining me on today's programme on what is a cloudy May morning here in the capital is Daniel Crouch. Daniel is a partner at Daniel Crouch Rare Books, a specialist dealer in antique atlases, maps, plans, sea charts and voyages dating from the 15th to the 19th centuries. Daniel is also the treasurer of the Antiquarian Booksellers Association and chair of Wolfcote Cricket Club in North Oxford. Um, Daniel, very warm welcome to yourself today and thank you ever so much for taking the time to join us on the show. Hi, good morning. It's a real pleasure welcoming you on, Daniel. Um, I think a good place to start would be by addressing the elephant in the room here, and that's the fact that we are still in the grip of the COVID-19 global pandemic, and we have been for the best part of 14 months. And given you work in quite a niche industry, I was wondering to what extent this whole thing has affected you and your business. Well, obviously, as the very definition of a non-essential business, um, we were closed for a large part of um, both 2020 and early 2021. Um, and we have a shop. Uh, we, we had two shops, one in New York and one in London. Um, and we didn't really do anything in terms of uh, retail business for most of that time. However, um, you know, all things have worked out better than I had expected this time last year. And although we've had to close the uh, New York business, um, mainly because the Upper East Side of New York was uh, no longer the place that it was in 2019, um, we've, we've, we've found that we've come through this and we've managed to keep everybody employed, which is the main thing that we intended to do at the beginning. That's brilliant to hear. Really, really encouraging stuff. And just going back to sort of the early days of the uh, the crisis, of course, it, it's good now looking back that you've kept everybody in a job. But I can imagine that you were having to sort of wrangle with some real anxiety at the very beginning of this. And that might have been a, quite a tricky experience. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the very, very beginning was um, particularly defined. We were in Maastricht at the European Fine Art Fair, a huge trade show in the Netherlands. and. Um, about 25 people were diagnosed with COVID um, as a direct result of that fair, including uh, two of my colleagues who were out there with me. Um, and so I drove back with them, instantly put myself into isolation and waited to get sick and then wasn't, although it turned out I would appear to have been asymptomatic. And then really from the middle of March right the way through till end of August, it was like someone just turned off the tap. I mean, there, there was no business. We did very little. Um, with the exception of one customer who very generously phoned up and said, I guess you guys could do with me buying something right now. Um, and that really saw us through. And then, uh, you know, come September, suddenly people realized there was a way out and things started picking up. And I think that a lot of collectors of rare maps and books were at home with uh, more time on their hands and uh, obviously things are doing quite well for them as well in terms of stocks and shares and investments. And so our business picked up. But certainly those first four months, um, I had this a lot of sleepless nights and this little list of employees and uh, who and how we'd have to lose people if things got really bad. And 
one that terrified me all the time is we have uh, one member of staff who's in the UK on a um, expert visa. And so if she lost her job with us, she would technically be deported along with her boyfriend. Goodness, uh, that's quite something, isn't it? And um, just thinking about sort of the um, the last sort of 14 months as a whole then, um, I understand that you've been sort of inactive for quite large periods of that up until the September just gone in 2020. But would you say that maybe the experience of managing the company through this crisis has perhaps taught you anything new at all? It's, yeah, an enormous amount. I mean, certainly the, the main thing is that... Um, my colleagues work at least as well, if not better, without me and my partner Nick in the shop. Um, we are able to all do a lot more remotely than we thought. Um, and that's given a whole new quality of life to a lot of people. As people spend more time at home, some time in the office, obviously, because we do deal with stuff and people. Um, but it has given us a, a new view on, on what we do in the year. And I used to travel all around the world and do 15 shows every year. and Perhaps uh, we've seen that that's not as important as we thought it was. Mm, that certainly makes sense. And thinking about sort of the experience that you've had sort of a little bit more broadly in terms of mentality and psychology as well, would you say that you've emerged from this stronger and maybe more aware than you were maybe sort of 12 to 14 months ago? Yes, um, so, so, certainly in a sort of happier place, um, weirdly. I mean, I think the fact that we've kept our employed is obviously Boyed us all enormously, um, and we are financially stronger. And we've realised that the shop in New York was uh, an expensive luxury, and one we can definitely do without. Um, and I would say that the, the, the quality of life has improved, and business has stayed steady. And quality of life and the work-life balance is something that's really come under the microscope during the pandemic, isn't it? And as a result of that, I think we're going to see the way that we do business, not just in the UK, but in the world at large, much changed um, as a result of the pandemic, aren't we? Of course, there's only so much scope that your business has to sort of change its way of operating. But that is something that we're going to see, isn't it, do you feel? Yeah, I mean, I think I think there's still obviously a huge importance to in, in-person events and mm. You know, as I say, I, I, ideally in stuff, I have to go and see it and people have to come and see it. Um, and I meet customers all around the world who don't necessarily know about the sort of material that we have until they encounter it. And so it's important we do get out and about. But perhaps there'll be fewer and better quality events and fewer air miles in doing so. Um, and the main change in quality of life is that everybody now who works for Danny Crouch Rare Books has at least one day in the week where they can work from home. Yes, absolutely. And um, that's very, very good for people to sort of have that work-life balance in place. And thinking, of course, about sort of leadership figures now in a bit more detail in that context, um, do you sort of find it easy to sort of step away from the business, take a step back when you need to and sort of switch off and recharge the batteries as a result of this as well? Uh, no, I'm terrible at that. Uh, <laughs> because, we work in all time, because we work in all time zones, the business follows me all through, all through the day. Um, but uh, as you mentioned earlier, I do play cricket and getting out on a cricket field and uh, playing with a Walker Cricket Club is, 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 is the way I turn off. 
And there's been a real emphasis on that as well, isn't there? Um, given, of course, the sort of health risks um, associated with sort of being unhealthy and COVID-19, I think there's going to be a real campaign for people to go out and play more sport as and when they're able to. Restrictions have been lifting. People have been allowed to go and do that in groups now. So that's something we might hopefully see in earnest a little bit more over the coming weeks and months. Absolutely. Well, the cricket season's in full swing despite the weather uh, now. And certainly last year, it was an enormous relief to be able to, as soon as we were able to and get out and play and practice and see each other. And because of an outside activity, it's pretty COVID safe. Um, and we've been practicing you know, COVID safe policies on the pitch. And so far, no one's got ill. And it's really good to get out and get some exercise and see the guys. Yes, I can imagine so. And um, just thinking about sort of working practices again for a moment there, of course, you mentioned that the business is really accustomed to working within all time zones. So I suppose when it comes to sort of remote contact, you were maybe a little bit ahead of the curve, weren't you? And it's maybe been a little bit easier to adapt in that sense to sort of those demands. Yes, although um, we hadn't quite embraced video technology in the way we have now. Um, I mean, Nick and I and everyone at the shop have been recording uh, some small videos related to some of our books, which you can see on our website. And we've been doing a lot of sort of Zoom viewings with customers. And that was something I'd never really got my head around before. And it's been really, really useful and rather successful. I had a meeting in Australia last week that was uh, uh, almost like having them in the shop. And that's quite, it's quite incredible, isn't it, what technology is capable of. But I suppose there's always an element of it that has to sort of remain for the in-person experience. So that's something that is still going to be important. People talk about sort of the changing retail environment especially, but I think there is still going to be a place for that because people have been keen, haven't they, since non-essential retail has returned to sort of flock back to sort of their local high streets and um, other settings. Yeah, we don't. That's actually one area that hasn't come back at all for us. I mean, Central London Mayfair mm. is pretty dead, um, and uh, certainly a, a lot of our walking trade, which was not a very large part of our business, but it was an important part of our business. Um, a lot of that has dropped off because fewer and fewer people are visiting London on business or, or, or leisure and dropping in. And I think what will change in the future is obviously we need to have bricks and mortar presence somewhere, and people need to come and see the books and maps. But it may be that people are coming to London once a year rather than three times a year. And that's something we have to adapt and deal with. Um, and that, that will probably be reflected in um, rates and rents in the, in the central town. Mm. But of course, when it comes to adapting in that sense, we've seen adapting, we've seen innovation on an unprecedented scale from industry over the last 14 months. And I think industry, therefore, is in a good place to continue to change for whatever state the world is going to be in. Yes, and certainly it's sharpened everybody up in terms of their online practices and their ability to um, become a bit more flexible with working practices and, and how we meet and talk to clients. It certainly has, hasn't it? And um, quite often as well, um, I tend to discuss sort of how mentally taxing it is for business executives trying to lead their companies through such a difficult situation. And we often hear that phrase that it's lonely at the top and people are constantly looking to our leaders in business for that inspiration, for that reassurance. But when you are the one at the top of the tree, where is it that you sort of draw your inspiration and your own motivation from to sort of keep going at a time of crisis? It's a pretty small tree in my position. Um, uh, well, I mean, you know, one looks to people who, who taught um, on things as the years have gone on. So previous employers, I, I don't think what would they have done? Um, my colleagues in the trade, well, you know, we're, I'm very lucky to work in a 
very collegiate uh, environment and other book dealers are um, you know, friends as well as colleagues and we often share um, our problems and our successes and that's been really important and still getting together albeit on Zoom rather than in restaurants but still talking to uh, friends and colleagues in the last year has been helpful but also more important than that uh, my family my wife my kids and I think having that support network that keyword there, network, is incredibly important. And also for some younger viewers that may be tuning into this podcast and thinking about starting business for themselves, networking and speaking to other business leaders, particularly those doing the same thing as them, it's one of the best things that you can do, isn't it? Uh, absolutely. And um, I mean, one of the smartest things I've ever done in my life, aside from my lovely wife, was agree to go into business with a partner rather than try and be a sole trader on my own because it's really important to share one's anxieties and uh, jokes with uh, with a friend. And uh, yes, certainly that, that, that's been absolutely beneficial during the last couple of years as well. Mm. And maybe going back to the start of the business, of course, you say you're relieved that you went into business with a partner, but is there anything that you'd maybe do differently armed with the knowledge that you have now? Uh, I was asked about this in a, uh, an interview recently. I, I came up with a then uh, instinctive reaction. Yes, I'd campaign more for, for keepers in the EU. Yes, of course, because I don't think in some ways we really felt the full impact of Brexit, have we? Because the economy has been shut down for such a large part of the year so far, albeit we're starting to see things returning and we've seen an impact in some certainly export industries. But I suppose the full pinch and the full effects aren't really going to be felt for quite some time yet. And then it's going to become clear as to reflecting on leaving the European Union, whether or not it was indeed a good idea. Well, I'm I'm a very international facing business, and we export a lot. It's been you know an unmitigated disaster. There is absolutely no upside whatsoever. Um, we have been hit by having to pay. Books are zero rated for VAT, and so um, where we had a, a zero rated advantage into the whole of the European market, we have been hit with separate VAT rates to import into each and every European country, um, which has had a huge effect on our ability to be competitive, but also just a hassle factor for clients. And then the main thing where I think the government has, has singularly failed to get anything right is the way the shipping companies and the customs are liaising with clients because it's a real mess. Things are coming in late. They are getting inappropriate fees levied on them. Um, and it just is very, very sticky. It is definitely not a friction-free border. It's not. And funnily enough, um, back in January, I was actually speaking on the program to um, a gentleman who runs um, a, um, a shellfish uh, company in the west of Scotland. And because they specialise, of course, in the export of live produce, the, the barriers that they've had have been absolutely staggering. So it's certainly you're not alone in that sense. There are a lot of businesses with similar complaints and they're having to, of course, work longer hours and also have more costs levied upon them, as you say, because they're having to employ more people to get all of the paperwork done as well, because the um, the administrative burden is just as big, of course, as the logistical one. Yeah, absolutely. Um, certainly, uh, my shippers are finding it all much, much harder. We use um, a brilliant firm called Art Logistics. Um, and it's just, you know, shipping costs have almost doubled. Um, and I've taken to, in order to try and work around the obstacles, I'm looking to register for VAT in Ireland, which is, you know, uh, a completely unnecessary and slightly insane way of routing my sales through Ireland in order to get into the EU. And other companies I know are being advised to open European offices, which can't be good uh, in terms of efficiency and it's certainly not very good for the environment. Mm. 
Mm. It's certainly also not good for taking business out of the uh, the UK as well, and that was of course one of the central pillars of the uh, the whole Brexit project. Um, so we'll certainly see over the uh, the coming um, years what will come of that. Um, but just before we do wrap things up, Daniel, because I am conscious that we are running short of time. Um, over the next sort of twelve months, and of course this isn't just in relation to COVID; it is also in relation to the, the Brexit conundrum. Um, where are you hoping really for the business to be within a year from now? Well, it's a um, fascinating time. I suspect that we will be doing more direct sales online. And I would like to see in a year's time, allied to that, a return of in-person events and travel, but with a much more concentrated effort on a few key events and to continue my new rather relaxed life of uh, spending more time at home with the family and playing cricket. And that's some of the most important things that of course you can do sort of have that time away from sort of the hectic business world step aside make some time for yourself because it is so important for that work-life balance for that mental health that we've spoken about um so much during this conversation um, and i have to say um daniel it's been a very eye-opening experience for myself and also for the uh, the listeners just understanding a bit more about what's going on within the industry at this point in time and as we really start to see over the next few months and years more of a clear picture as to what the impact is ultimately going to be of leaving the European Union, of the COVID-19 aftermath. I think it would be great to welcome you onto the show again to just catch up on goings on within the business and also what shape the industry at large is taking to. You'd be delighted to. Will be my pleasure as well, Daniel. Again, thank you so much for taking the time to join us today. And most importantly, please do take care and stay safe with all still going on in the world as well, because we're almost there, but we're not quite out of the woods yet. Magic. Thank you very much indeed. It was a pleasure to speak to Daniel Crouch on today's programme. And next up on the show, we'll be joined by former England cricket captain Sir Andrew Strauss, who during his playing days became one of only three England captains to secure the Ashes both at home and away in Australia, as well as racking up the second highest number of test victories for an England skipper in history. That will be coming up now. And now, ladies and gentlemen, without further ado, we extend a very warm welcome to a special guest in Sir Jeff Hurst, who joins us on the programme today. Um, Sir Jeff, good morning. Good morning. How are you? Very good, thank you. It certainly is a uh, wonderful uh, day for it, isn't it? It is. The weather's pretty good at the moment. I hope it might last. Absolutely. Thunderstorm, it's, it's lovely. It is certainly after a storm. And um, speaking of storms, actually, I'd like to start with just a hypothetical scenario. If we imagine if we fast forward two years, Sir Jeff, let's imagine it's December 2022 and it's the World Cup final and England are there. We could be playing defending champions France. We could be playing the Germans, anybody. And England are 2-0 up in the 90th minute. So victory is all but guaranteed. And Harry Kane, with a brace to his name already, is brought down in the penalty area. So he has the opportunity to make history by emulating yourself and becoming only the second ever player to score a World Cup final hat-trick. Would you honestly want him to bury it or would you prefer him to fluff his lines? I'd want him to bury it. Um, I've asked that question, again, that question asked a bit. Um, I've had a good run uh, with, with this record and goodness me, uh, it's nearly 60 years, I guess, if, if uh, we're looking at 2022. No, I'd want him to bury it. A, a for him, he's a fantastic player. Uh, tremendous goal scorer and if anybody I'd like to um, repeat what I achieved uh, it would be someone like Harry who was a f- fantastic professional with, with Spurs in England so absolutely and I want England to do well I mean I I'm want England to be successful I, I'm an England supporter I'm a football supporter 
And I just, I really want the country to do well in, in anything, in, in all sports, and particularly in my sport. So I wouldn't want to bury it. And I'll be absolutely, I will be as delighted as anybody in, in the country um, if, if he can achieve that. But, but more importantly, that England, England have achieved what we achieved all those years ago. And it's important that the team uh, do it as opposed to Harry doing it individually. Mm. And that's how I felt about my. Uh, my achievements about the team being successful, whether I got two or three, in one sense is, is uh, I wouldn't say immaterial, but it's about the team winning. It's all about the team. Mm. Exactly. Consideration of the wider team is a cornerstone of leadership, which is, of course, what the Leaders' Council is all about, recognising that and promoting that for the future. But if we sort of flash back 54 years to that moment in 1966 when you were bearing down on goal, I understand that a lot of people always ask you the question about whether you actually knew there were people on the pitch at the time. And there's quite a bit of a joke about that. But there's something else that I'm actually interested in. I understand we all know what happened. The ball nestled in the top corner. England won 4-2 and lifted the World Cup. But you've often described that as being a mishit finish sometimes before, haven't you? Yes, I think people... Um, I, I've, I, I recall exactly what's amazing. I can recall exactly what I was thinking. Um, at that moment, obviously a crucial moment in, in the game towards the end of the game. I knew the game was nearly finished. I, as the ball came to me initially, I was actually, with my back to goal, I was actually looking at the referee uh, 10 yards from me in the middle of the park and he was waving at the whistle in his mouth but waving play on with both arms, indicating quite clearly, of course, that the game was nearly finished. So when I got to the edge of the box, I'm, I now think of the game is nearly finished. I'm thinking that the game's nearly finished. I'm now going to whack this ball with everything I've got left. But I'm thinking if it goes beyond the beyond the sand into the crowd by the time the ball boy gets it back to uh, hands to Kowski, the German keeper, by that time, surely the game's got to be over. But as I always jokingly say, uh, I miss hit it and, it and it flew in. But I was thinking about wasting time, not so much about, uh, but certainly what I was going to do, which, which sorry, I was going to hit it as hard as I possibly could after those two hours. And it just goes to show sometimes that hit and hope taking a punt can sometimes be the way forward because I think it shows that in any form of leadership, be it in sport or in business, you can't go sometimes without taking risks. Absolutely, yes. Absolutely. Yes. I mean, I wasn't in that position with risk in a sense because the game was unfinished, but that that philosophy is right. You're just going to, uh, an element of, of, of risks, uh, of making it's going to be a control on that risk, not not stupid risks in, in mm. all walks of life. An element of maybe doing something that you're not too sure about, but sometimes in life you've got to have a go. You can't get be successful in terms of long term leadership if you're just always sitting on the fence and not taking any chances. I don't think that's where the great leaders will get to by having that kind of philosophy. You've got to move forward. And the last time that you actually joined us on the Leaders' Council podcast and spoke with my colleague Jonathan White, uh, Sir Jeff, was back in February, of course. And that was a point where we knew a little bit about COVID-19, which was looming, but that was before it really took hold in the UK and really turned our world upside down. And before that, this summer was meant to be all about the England national team once again, who were going to the European Championships. But that's in a way now being replaced by the National Health Service and we've been supporting the health service and applauding their efforts and we're hanging out thank you banners displaying drawings of rainbows very much in the same vein that you'd see the George Cross adorning most households during a major tournament year. Do you feel there are parallels between the sense of national unity that we've discovered during this time and the spirit of 1966? Oh absolutely particularly the, the 
recognition of the NHS with what they're doing. And I think it was a great idea uh, during that period where they asked everybody to stand outside their houses and clap and congratulate the NHS for what, what they were going through. And I think it's, it's been criticism in the past, of course, the NHS on how it's run, but there's enough, enough funding for it and, and so on. But really, we begin to realise during these turbulent times how absolutely vital and important it is to have a health service that works efficiently and to see individually the, the amount of people who are interviewed almost every day on the t- terrible circumstances they were having to work under with, with masks and so on. And, and also into what was also, for me, fantastic, all these people from different, different countries all over the world that were working in our country uh, with the same you, you, union to, to be successful and uh, help people to survive uh, COVID. Uh, very heartwarming. And I think that kind of feeling, I, I probably, as a player in 66, I probably wasn't aware at that time of the unity of the country. I've learned that over the years when I talk to people um, who were about 66 and they will tell you what a great day it was and where they were remembered exactly what they were doing and the fantastic stories. So that identified then as that great unification of the country, 30 million plus viewers, the biggest viewing TV viewing audience we've had. So today, um, it's certainly uh, through this pandemic and the NHS has been absolutely magnificent and every single person, uh, some very fantastic and heartwarming stories of how they're dealing with this unbelievably uh, difficult situation from a health perspective, uh, fantastic. So that was really heartwarming to get out and, and cheer and clap on the balcony um, for the NHS, fantastic. Mm, certainly inspiring what we've been seeing uh, from the uh, the front line as well. And flashing back just to 1966 again, just from a leadership point of view, um, the manager that made all of that possible and oversaw yourself and your teammates on the, the road to the World Cup was, of course, Sir Alf Ramsey. What sets somebody like him or Ron Greenwood apart from other coaches? Because I understand that both men had a profound impact on you, not just as a player, but also as a person as well. Well, I think that... I was very fortunate. <laughs> You're talking about coming to the fortunate in your life to be at the time when I was physically at my my best during those those, those years. Um, born earlier or later, I wouldn't have been around uh, physically enough, uh, clever enough, uh, technically good enough to, to be a rap, to be a, a good player. But at that time, I'm involved with arguably the greatest coach um, we've seen in this country, Harry Redknapp who's been around a long time, would still say he is, is the best coach he has worked with. And this is, that's 50 years having been in the business plus. And then moving on to, to having a at national level, a great manager. Uh, and the two coincided in a sense because Ron Greenwood always always said that and felt that he, as a, as a, a coach of a League One club, uh, or Premier League as it is today, it's, it's important you prepare the and teach and coach the players to be to prepare to be playing in the best company, playing for England. And so he prepared us to be playing for England. And then Alf Ramsey knew the players to pick. Um, discipline was his big skill, making sure those players were disciplined uh, in the right formation. Uh, so the two combined move from one to the other. Uh, how, how can you possibly be as, as fortunate um, as, as I was? It was just uh, amazing. So I think Ron was. I think there are two different 
aspects of football in terms of leadership. You've got a, you've got a, a coach, it's a team coach, who's a teacher effectively, then you've got the other kind of character who's a, who's a manager, who manages people, may not be quite so good technically on the coaching aspects, but by that stage, a wrong reason of passing a coach person to Alf, who's then managed from a discipline point of view, because you're managing people from the whole country. You're not just managing a club, you're managing people, uh, different characters and from all over the, the country is, is slightly more demanding job in that respect. So you've got to hone that lot of all over, different characters, strengths, players, into a unit to play for, uh, to represent England. So Alf Ramsey was, was very good at that. His discipline was, was fantastic. So the com- combination of the two, uh, you can't say I can't be as, I'm so blessed to be as fortunate as I was to come across these two fantastic uh, uh, people in my life, in my, in my football life. And I suppose for every Sir Alf Ramsey and Ron Greenwood um, as well that you have worked with, there are also coaches out there that one might work with that perhaps might not get the best out of players during their, um, of course, their peak. But just, of course, just but just as much as you can learn from, of course, coaches that do get the best out of players, you can learn as much from less effective leaders as you can from good ones as well, because that experience can ultimately mould you as a person, can't it? Oh yes, I think it, yes, I think leadership is important and coaching and teaching is important. Um, and, and the great teachers and coaches and managers ha- have that skill. Sometimes it's an innate skill in, in management. They have it. But I think um, you you can learn, if you're central enough, to learn from people who are uh, teaching you or coaching you. It's not the right way to go about teaching you or coaching or managing you. You can learn uh, from that. If you're a player, you can learn what you think is a good coach what you think is a good manager, which you can take into your career after playing into uh, coaching or management. So you can learn as much from people making mistakes. You can learn also from making your own mistakes. Mm. You can do something in the past that think well, like that was a really stupid thing to do and I'll make sure I'm not going to do that again. And it, it is important in all of life. You learn from your mistakes. People will make mistakes. Uh, young people will make mistakes. But it's learning. It's the silly people who make mistakes and don't learn from it, continue making those same mistakes throughout their life and becoming maybe unsuccessful throughout their, their career. Mm, completely understand exactly where you're coming from. I think it's almost impossible to become an effective leader in our profession without having that learning curve of making mistakes and learning from them exactly. Um, during your Absolutely. conversation um, with Jonathan back in February, um, Sir Jeff, I know that you and him discussed at length some of the big inspirations and influences on you throughout your career and throughout adulthood. But I understand that your love for football and obsession with the sport actually started a lot earlier even if you were toing and froing between football and cricket somewhat at the time. I read somewhere that during your teenage years, you were once fined one pound for disturbing the peace after consistently kicking a football into a neighbour's garden. Is that true? <laughs> Not many people know that, as the saying goes. Yeah, that's absolutely true. When, in, in those uh, medieval days, you, there were, you weren't football pitches or place very rarely where you could play. You, um, in our road in Greenway, it was called in Chelmsford, we, that three or four lads, <coughs> lived quite, quite close to it. It's a cul-de-sac, it's not a big long road um, with a round, with a circle at the bottom. So there wasn't a great deal of traffic anyway, A, because it was a, a cul-de-sac, and B, because there weren't as many cars, no, we didn't as many cars in those days. So uh, we played acro- across the str- across the road um, and you used to have to learn to chip the ball above the pavement to hit the uh, the goal at the back. The goal was about a, a two-foot-wide semicircular where the tree where a tree was planted that was the goal. And so it's just three of us 
play football. But amongst those houses where we lived and played, there was a, a family and a, a boy that didn't play football. Um, I think he he was interested in uh, flying, you know, and making balsa wood gliders. And uh, nice guy, but just didn't didn't play football. And on this particular garden, of course, occasionally the ball finished up there. And crazily enough, they um, took us to court. And uh, we actually got fined. This is absolutely true. We got fined a pound for kicking the ball in the neighbour's garden. Astounding when you think about it, isn't it? Mm. And when you there's nowhere else to play apart from the street. And uh, we were actually... But that that happens. That happens. You'll, you'll hear stories. We see stories of neighbours falling out over different things. You see those those stories every day. But that was certainly a true story. Absolutely, absolutely true. And during that time, um, who was it during childhood that you really looked up to that you thought was an inspiration to you and made you really think that going into professional sport was going to be the route for you? Well, my father was obviously the, the, the biggest inspiration for me because he was an ex-player. He, he played uh, lower down for Oldham Rochdale. We actually moved south from Manchester. We lived, we lived, I was born in Ashton under Line. We actually moved south to Chelmsford when I was... Pr- probably I was the eldest of three when I was probably about seven or eight into this particular street uh, called Greenways. And he, what he did with me, I think was uh, had a big influence going back to that third gold in the World Cup in many years in the back garden. And when we moved on to it, we moved up market to a council house somewhere in Chelmsford and he would have me in the back garden teaching me to kick with my left foot. And so I, at that time, and even today, it's, it's, uh, you don't see that many players that are uh, completely two-footed, and I was. Maybe not as two-footed as Bobby Charlton. Even Jack Charlton, his brother, didn't know which was his best foot. He, he was fantastic. But I was pretty pretty um, um, two-footed. And a lot of the hat-tricks I scored were one right, one left, and a header. So um, he, had, he had a huge influence. I wasn't, I wasn't a child, although I had a football, footballing father, I wasn't a child whose father pushed him into being a footballer. He, he um, and what happened with my, my story is a friend of my father, I know the guy's name, called Jock Redfern, unbeknownst to me, he wrote to two clubs uh, for a trial. He wrote to Arsenal and he wrote to West Ham United when I was just after school leaving age. Uh, West Ham uh, replied, they asked me to come for a trial um, I went for a trial with them and uh, they saw something in me and took me on the what was called the ground staff then, uh, almost at school in the age. And uh, so I wasn't necessarily thinking I've got to go into football. It's just that that's how it, how it happened. Uh, although I enjoyed football and I was pretty reasonably good, there was no big focus on me uh, as a great schoolboy player. Nobody was scouting me or uh, you know writing to my parents saying, come and have a trial at this club or that club. Uh, but a friend of my father um, wrote the letter. So that's, that's how it happened. The problem I had during those early years, I enjoyed cricket as well, and I was messing about, as I, I kindly put it, between the two sports, which was hugely detrimental to me in my early, early development, either as a cricketer or either as a footballer. And it wasn't until Ron Greenwood um, miraculously tried me. I was a midfield player then, or centre-half at school. Um, he... Uh, tell him I'm going to try you up front. He put me up front in the game and then my, my whole football career and life changed dramatically. And I suppose as well, what might have also done it for football as opposed to cricket was that fateful match uh, for Essex over in Egberth against Lancashire, wasn't it? 
Yes, a lot of people know that. I have one game, uh, one game at the sort of went messing about between the two. I had the one first-class game for Essex, as you said, Egbert in um, in Liverpool. And I think I got naught and, and naught not out, I think. So, I mean, we won the game for me. I filled a couple of catches, but uh, Essex actually won the game. Um, the V Lancashire up, up in their territory. But that was that was a real problem for me. I think I could have done some advice maybe earlier to say, make your mind up. But when you look back, when even today cricket goes through till, what, September? Whereas football starts in July, so there's a huge overlap. And I'm still playing cricket until September, missing pre-season, early games. For those two or three years, extremely detrimental to me doing well at one or the other. Uh, until Ron Green would just put me up front and that was it. And from a standing start, I think my first season around, I think September, October, I, I played my first game up front against Liverpool. And I think I played about... 23, 24 games, no, 27, 28 games and scored 14 goals, like one in two from a standing start for a mm. midfield player. So um, quite changed dramatically. Um, that was 60, 62, 63 season, the three years before the World Cup. And when we think about leadership in football, the role of a goalkeeper, of course, not related to your own career, is to essentially build from the back and command this penalty area. And one goalkeeper that you played with, not just for England, but also for Stoke City in the later years in your career, was Gordon Banks. I have to confess, as a boyhood Port Vale supporter, I am relieved that incredible talents like yourself and Gordon are no longer occupying the dressing room there. And I did have the fortune of meeting Gordon when I was a young boy as well. But what was Gordon like as a leader on the field? Well, first of all, he, he was a great, uh, two things for Gordon. He was a, a great keeper. Um, I would still say the greatest English keeper we've ever had uh, and one of the best keepers in the world. Um, absolutely fantastic. Funny enough, I didn't realise, it's funny how you look at, I see when Gordon passed away, naturally, you know, sadly, um, a few months ago, and obviously it's showing a lot of videos of Banksy, programs about Banksy and the great saves he made and the save against Pelé and so on. But I didn't realise how um, athletic he was, uh, how quick he was, athletic, um, springing forward to smother balls, and not just hitting balls. Agility-wise, he was absolutely fantastic. But as a character, he was a joker. He was a, a very kind, very mild-mannered, lovely lovely man, the nicest guy you can possibly wish to meet. But he was a joke. He always had a, a joke for you. Every time you met sometime, he'd, he'd have a new joke. And uh, people um, talk about him and who are close to him and remember what a what a, um, a joke he was. And they're the two things that really stick out for, Man- for Banksy. And we were very lucky. Uh, very lucky, of course, to have that kind of... And you need that kind of quality um, as a world-class player. When you win a World Cup, you need four or five players, which we were very fortunate to have in our team. Um, uh, Banksy is one of the world-class players, along with Bobby Moore and, and Bobby Charlton. Uh, Jimmy Greaves didn't play with a world-class player, in, but in the squad, and Ray Wilson, our left-back, I'd always argue, was a world-class player. So you need that kind of quality initially if you're going to be successful in winning a World Cup from world-class players. And Banksy was up there, w- w- not with the best, the best for me. 
And another thing from during your days at Stoke City as well was that a talented but then troubled young midfielder by the name of Alan Hudson first joined the uh, the club around uh, the early 70s. And I know that you were asked to take him in as a lodger to provide him with a stable home during his spell there by then-manager Tony Waddington. Now, I've spoken to a great many directors and executives on this programme before, and all of them described trust as being a key cornerstone of leadership. How did it feel for you knowing that Waddington trusted you to that degree to ask that of you? Well, I was extremely flattered. It was a huge compliment that he saw me as a, and of course, over the years, hopefully that, that had come out. That's important that uh, you have those kind of qualities as a player that A, he saw when I was at West Ham and B, obviously he acquired me to play at Stoke City. So I was I was initially first fairly surprised, I think it <laughs> And certainly, my wife was fairly surprised when I when I said I need her permission for for me to um, uh, allow Alan Hudson to stay with us in that, those early periods. But what he saw, of course, in me was uh, which is, I can see in myself. I was, I was a very disciplined person, a very disciplined player, which you have to be. I didn't really have, I would say, the qualities of the world class players like the Bobby Charles and the Jimmy Greaves and the Bobby Moores. So uh, you need to have bring all the other characteristics to be successful at that level, to compete in their level. And discipline was one of them. And, and um, obviously, Tony Wadding saw that. And if he wanted to put, he trusted me that I was disciplined enough to hopefully push some of my discipline into Alan Hudson, which we did. And um, in those early six months and year, a couple of years, he was come up a bit heavier from Chelsea. He lost a bit of weight. And uh, although he was a little bit indisciplined himself, hence they needed him to, to stay with me, what he was was a fantastic player. He is uh, was he is one of the, the, the most fantastic players I think I've come across. The, across, but not hit the best because I think he was a certain uh, slightly bit of ill discipline within his, his general life. And you need at the top, and I'm talking at the top being, being an England player. But I compare him purely on ability compared with ability up in the France Beckenbauer mould, mm. without any shadow of a doubt. He, he was that good. So it was a bit of fun and enjoyable times, uh, getting uh, serving Alan Hudson the cups of tea about eight o'clock at night when we had our tea at our home for those uh, those few months. And I think it was a, a big help to uh, getting Alan back on track and performing brilliantly for the club. And following on from your days with the uh, the Potters, you went on, of course, to play football in Ireland and the United States before the end of your career. Did you feel that the dressing room and indeed leadership culture at those clubs differed from perhaps what you've been used to back in England? Um, well, I think Ireland was just a short spell with, with Cork Celtic, so it's hard to judge and make any comparisons. And of course, in, in, in America, it was the early days of, um, of football in America, uh, and I thoroughly enjoyed my time at, at Seattle, so it's difficult to make a, uh, a comparison. I think I was fortunate at West Ham, we was a great time at the club, and I was fortunate to play with Stoke City uh, for three years, and it was a fantastic time for that particular club. They won, of course, the uh, the the League Cup before I went there. Mm. Sadly, they knocked us out in the semi final, so it was a, a marvelous time for for that particular club. And very close, we actually I think we played Ajax in, in the following year in, in Europe. I think we only lost on on a goal over two over the two games against Ajax. So it was a great time for the club. So I'm very fortunate to have played. Uh, for, for those two clubs only a short spell at West Brom of course but I think uh, as, as I always jokingly say 
I think I was past my uh, sell-by date then. Um, West Brom was a fantastic club, but I was I wasn't at my best, and I felt it was time to retire, which I did. And Johnny Giles was in charge then. I think uh, West West Brom actually got up that year, but I've made very little contributions to that success that I've had. So um, yes, it, uh, the, the, the American experience was just fantastic. I never thought of long term being over there. That was a, a, a brilliant few months with my wife and um, uh, two daughters, and my wife actually was. Uh, pregnant with her third daughter over there, so that was that was a good time. It's completely different. Ireland was just a just a. I always joke about Ireland. I was there for about I think a month. I think it was, and I enjoyed the experience. And I earned a few quid, and I think it paid for, for the kitchen in one of my houses back in England. New, new kitchen. <laughs> So it certainly went really well. I suppose in the waning days of um, your career, um, was it humbling that? you realised that people were beginning to actually look up to you and be inspired by you as a legend as in perhaps the same way that you were looking to the likes of Bobby Moore earlier on in your career? Yeah, so I think it's, I think the, that kind of, uh, whatever the word, correct word is, I don't know, being looked at and, and revered sort of comes maybe, uh, maybe longer, maybe in longer, not some sort of immediately after the finish playing, but in the long term when, um, uh, and I always joke with people introduce me either to other people or introduce me on stage as a legend. And, and I always jokingly say you, you only start being called a legend when you're over seventy. And I think the, the whatever the word is, I'm not sure, adulation or recognition or whatever, it sort of happens, and you think more about it, or it happens and occurs more in later years. Not not certainly. Um, I felt during the. Time after I finished playing or managing or playing for England during, during my football career, and I think I I went into business for twenty years. I don't think anybody looked necessarily looked at me when I was in business as necessarily a legend or somebody they could look up. So I I felt that kind of attitude probably has happened in in my later years probably. For those younger generations, just lastly, Sir Jeff, before we do wrap things up, um, for people who are aspiring to become leaders in business, politics, sport, or indeed any walk of life, if you could offer any advice to them based upon your experience, what advice would you give them? Simple advice in, in, in a sentence is really, I learned a lot from Alf Ramsey. He was a, he was a boss. I think a boss sometimes has a natural characteristic. You can learn about management on management courses. But there's certain characteristics when the successful bosses is, is within them to start with. But one of the things I learned from Alfred Ramsey, which I've taken into my, my business life and even my, uh, talking to my family life, if they're involved in business, is when you're managing people, you manage them as a group. Anybody that doesn't want to be part of that group, you find is, is, is backing against what you want to achieve as a boss, you move them out. And I think that's the simple, one of the most simple uh, lessons I've learned during the Alfred Ramsey period. Even some of the great players, I felt should have been in the squad possibly at, at the time without mentioning names. Um, and you hear stories about this player not, you know, completely complying with everything, and they're, they're left out or they're not even in the squad. And I felt that was and even some with great ability, I, I think probably didn't make it. And I think a lot of it stems down to they didn't want to be, they wanted to be, you know, a lone champion, successful person, didn't want to be part of of the group. So that, that for me is the, the key message, the single key message I would pass on to anybody who wants to manage a group of people in any walk of life. 
ties in very nicely with a quote from one Nelson Mandela, in fact, that surround yourself with people who are better than you are in some ways. And I think that is incredibly sound advice indeed. Yes, it is. Very good. Good advice. Yes. So, Jeff, thank you ever so much for joining us on the uh, the programme this morning. It's been an absolute pleasure having you with us to discuss your life, career and leadership. And it would be a pleasure to welcome you back on the programme in future to discuss further. Pleasure. Thank you. Enjoy, enjoy being part of the programme. Thank you. Likewise, thank you ever so much for your time again. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.